everyone, and welcome to the All It Takes a Goal podcast, the best place in the entire world, including all of Canada, all of it, to learn how to build new thoughts, new actions, and new results. I'm your host, John Acuff, and today I'm joined by Jeremy Utley. Who's that? I'm so glad you asked. Jeremy Utley is the Director of Executive Education at Stanford's acclaimed Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, aka the D-School, where he leads the D-School's work with organizations. Stanford, very, very impressive. He's a self-proclaimed recovering MBA, spreadsheet junkie, and management consultant, and he now studies innovation in large enterprises and startups. He advises CEOs and senior leadership teams in the United States, Europe, and Asia on growth and innovation strategy, and has led scores of capacity-building initiatives worldwide in his last dozen years at Stanford. He's a prolific blogger and podcaster and is a co-author alongside with Perry Cleban. Oh man, Perry. I'm just going to say Perry because I'm sure I brutalized that last name. Perry Cleban. I think it's a silent H. They wrote a book together called Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. It's due out from Penguin Portfolio. I had a couple of books with Penguin Portfolio, amazing publisher, and he's happily married. He's a father of four lovely daughters. And we had a fun, fun, fun conversation. I actually got to do something he runs called the Masters of Creativity with Stanford. It was really, really fun. Um, Online program, big international audience. And I geek out in this interview about ideas because here's the thing. I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in idea bankruptcy. If you can't come up with a good idea, it just means you haven't been feeding your, your work. You haven't been deliberate about creating ideas and crafting ideas and collecting ideas. I talk a little about that in this episode. It's the way I've been able to write so many books and I've got so many more that I'm going to write because I'm really deliberate about how I think about ideas and Jeremy is an expert on that. So I definitely geek out in this episode. We're about to jump in, but first a quick message about the sponsor of today's episode. Every year I set crazy big goals and every year there's one productivity tool that I use to help me reach them, the Finish Calendar. I've been using it for over a decade and it's helped me crush goals like running a thousand miles in a year, growing my business and writing a New York Times bestselling book. Thousands of people have bought them over the years too. Why? Because it works. It's not magic, it's science. Study after study has shown how important tracking your year is. But my favorite came from the University of Kostanz in Germany. They showed that when you track when and where you're going to work on something, you double your chances of success. Let me say that again. You double your chances of success. This calendar is massive. It's beautiful. It's motivational. And it comes in paper or dry erase. On top of all the other amazing features, you can choose to display it vertically or horizontally because this bad boy is also double-sided. If you've got a big goal or a lot of big goals, Grab a finished calendar today at finishcalendar.com. Once again, that's finishcalendar.com. All right, let's jump into my interview with Jeremy. All right, Jeremy, I'm looking forward to this. We've already done some fun stuff together um, over the last couple of months. So excited that you're here. Can't wait for my audience to learn more about what you do and experience all things creativity and Stanford and Jeremy. So thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I want to jump right in. On your 10th birthday, you told your father that when you grew up, you wanted to be one of those people who carry boxes with handles. Yes. Cases. Yes. Like if you told your 10 year old self that you would end up at Stanford doing what you're doing, what would he have said? Uh, What Stanford? Probably. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, just no clue, right? I mean, at yeah. the time when I was 10 years old, I was a preacher's kid in Tulsa, yep. Oklahoma on vacation. The, the vacations that we took on our double digit birthday was to Dallas and yeah. we stayed at a uh, Holiday Inn and we're sitting in the hot tub. So that's the context. Okay. Yeah. Me and my dad, preacher dad from Tulsa, Oklahoma. What kind sitting- of pastor? Uh, non-denominational gotcha. kind of evangelical okay. church. Yeah, gotcha. exactly. Okay. And we're just sitting in the hot tub. He's like, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, yeah, you know, those guys who carry the boxes with handles on them. I want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I probably seen one of them in them? Dallas. Probably, probably because <laughs> we went to a Mavs game. 
that night. Okay. This is back in like the Jason Kidd era when he yeah, was a player. Yeah, Jason Kidd. Player. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I'm sure I saw somebody carrying a box with a handle and I thought, that guy looks like he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's going somewhere. He Look is that like, guy. he's determined. He's walking quickly. I want to do like that. like his gait. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The way his jacket kind of, you know, flaps in the breeze. It's all very yeah. appealing. Yeah. So fast forward from then to now, describe to people who are listening what it is you do at Stanford. Because it's pretty, in my opinion, it's pretty amazing. Tell us about what, you know, what it is that you actually do there. In short, I help people come up with ideas very simply. Sometimes that's executives from big companies. Sometimes it's entrepreneurs who are trying to launch businesses. Sometimes it's students who are trying to reinvent their lives. But generally speaking, what I'm doing when I'm in the classroom is helping people come up with ideas. And then the other thing and the other way you and I know each other is I host a pretty fun and engaging speaker series called Masters of Creativity, where I get to showcase a bunch of incredible entrepreneurs authors, activists, entertainers, et cetera, and just talk about creative practice and the context wherever they're coming from. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really international. That's what struck me. I yeah. was, because I got to do it a couple of months ago, I was really struck by how international the audience was because we open it up to questions and there'd be, here's a question from India, here's a question from Sweden, here's a question from Finland. And so mm-hmm. that was super fun for me. What was the path to Stanford for you? So, because I'm a pastor's kid huh. and oh, okay. I, I veered just right at Stanford. Just, I was on my way and then I was like, I just veered right. What was your path from kid to Stanford? You know, weirdly, I remember in high school, a friend of mine, who was a couple years older than me, he went to a college visit at Stanford and he came back with a Stanford t-shirt and he gave it to me and he said, you're going to go here. And I didn't know Stanford from Sanford, you know, Connecticut. Yeah. And I... So that just maybe incepted the idea just a little bit. But then for me, I went to UT in Austin. It's a, you know, state school, most affordable school I could go to. They gave me a full ride, which I think, by the way, was (laughs) $3,000. That was the full ride. Uh, And so I did that. And, you know, for me, it's a pretty circuitous route, but I, uh, I studied finance mostly because it was the only major I heard of that didn't require a foreign language. And I was just Mm -hmm. trying to get out of whatever unpleasant work I could possibly get out of. Little did I know that that was going to land me in spreadsheets, which are a whole other foreign language. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I learned pretty quickly financial analysis was not my, um, it was actually interestingly, I was about to say it's not my favorite thing. I was good at it. You know, you can learn Mm -hmm. skills that you're good at, but you don't enjoy. And there's kind of a question of what's a contribution I want to make to the world? Is it only what I'm capable of doing um, from an ability perspective? Is interest or passion? How do those things layer in? Um, But for me, I... I knew I didn't want to go into investment banking. So I went into the next best job that I could find, which was management consulting. And really quickly, I discovered I didn't like that either. And so I uh, came to Stanford actually as a career reset. So I went to business school at Stanford primarily to figure out, okay, I've learned what I don't want to do with my life. What Mm -hmm. do I want to do with my life? And so you finished business school and then how do you transition to actually being employed by Stanford? Yeah. So, um, Business school is two years long and in the summer in between years, um, because I had already, because I knew I didn't like my consulting job, I signed up to go back after school, of course, yeah, right? Because yeah, I knew yeah. I didn't like it. So let's just do it a little bit longer. Um, yeah. But because I had made that decision, I had a little bit more freedom in the summer between years of business school. It was summer 2008. And so I actually went and worked at a startup in India. I had Mm -hmm. thought I want to be involved with economic development. I had spent the previous summer, my wife and I were married. We had spent our summer in Zambia working in an AIDS orphanage. Mm -hmm. And I had spent a summer in college working in Bolivia at a startup incubator. So I had seen some, you know, South American experience. I'd seen some African experience. And I I really thought I want to do poverty alleviation kind of work. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be in the developing world. So when I was searching for internships, because I already knew supposedly what job I was going to have when I got done with school, I was a little bit more liberal in my search. So I ended up searching for developing world, primarily Asia opportunities at venture backed startups. And I ended up landing a job at a really cool organization called D-Light Design, which makes solar powered lanterns for folks who live off the grid, who typically burn Mm -hmm. kerosene. That's 
you know, it's terrible for the, you know, indoor air quality. Yeah. A lot of homes burned down because of that, et cetera. So they had raised mm-hmm. some venture financing and we're off to the races. And that's just the kind of environment I wanted to be in. So I was there for four months. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, there's a, uh, there's a designer down the hall who's doing really cool stuff. Like he, you know, we, we were sharing a, an apartment there outside of Delhi in this town called Noida. And I'd be, you know, jamming on the spreadsheets and mm-hmm. Joe would be gone for a couple of days and he'd come back. I'd say, Joe, where have you been? He's like, oh, I was living in the slum. I was, you know, working with yeah. people. I was testing new products and I'm, I'm going, what are you talking about? Living in the slums? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. And that was my introduction to design was seeing kind of a designer up close and personal do his thing in the context of, you know, primary research and prototyping and experimentation. And after I kept popping my head in his office, he started going, dude, you're a D school kind of guy. You need to go check out the D school. Ah. And I didn't know really what that was. So when I came back to Stanford, my second year, I just spent all of my elective credits taking classes at this thing called the D school, which is kind of a hub for interdisciplinary collaboration at Stanford for folks like me. If you're in the business school or if you're in the law school, medical engineering, whatever, you can take classes at the D school. And that was my introduction to design. That is a, that's a really interesting route. I'm curious, how did you get opened up to how big the world is? So like we talked about you're 10, you live in Tulsa, so, like, who first started to say to you, okay, Jeremy, Tulsa is this size, but there's actually slums. There's actually other countries. There's actually other needs. What were some of the experiences that opened you up to a bigger conversation? You know, I think for me, it started with church-based mission trips and things like mm-hmm. that, going maybe to build houses in Mexico or things like even just in other cities in the United States, I participated mm-hmm. in stuff like that. I think it gave me a little bit more of a worldview, but it was mostly about, um, you know, humanitarian relief. What can I do to help? Mm-hmm. It wasn't really until business school that I feel like my worldview is really opened in terms of the number of jobs that can be done in the world. You know, when I was 15, I worked at Chick-fil-A and yeah. I thought, I mean, I was all about getting people through the drive through as quickly as possible, you know? And then when I was in college, I worked at Macaroni Grill and I was all about eating as many of those loaves of bread before my shift in the back as possible, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was, and my dad was a, he was a preacher. Then he became a lawyer. Um, my mom worked at Dillard's in the mall, you know? And so my, mm-hmm. my view of kind of the jobs to be done was fairly limited. I would say entrepreneurship really wasn't even on my radar at all as a, as a, thing to be done, authorship, even being a teacher, none of those things were really jobs Mm -hmm. that were in my consideration set. Um, But I think it's when I came to business school, I started, you know, there's all sorts of clubs, there's all sorts of people coming from different countries and industries. You start talking to them, you go, wait, you can do that for a living? Mm -hmm. You talk to the next person, wait, you can do that for a living? It's I didn't know people did that, right? So it's kind of a very slowly unfolding process for me. I'm a slow learner. Uh, yes. See, I don't know. I don't think so. Cause the, dis- the experiences you've had sound like an 80 year old person, like the, uh, the, the variety, the variety is longer than, cause yeah, like you're yeah. like, then I spent four months in India, then I did this. So you get to the D school or you start taking electives and yeah. you kind of fall in love with the idea of what the D school is. Yeah. And then how do you transition to your full time at Stanford? What's the next, what's the next rung on the ladder? Well, so after that year of classes, I was, I was really torn between either going back to my consulting job, which I already knew I didn't really, it it, it didn't resonate with my heart, you know, but it was financially the wise thing to do. And I was really wrestling with that. I had a good friend who had launched an amazing organization that's since really taken off. I probably am stupid for have not joined. It was called Nuru and he was doing poverty alleviation. He was starting in Kenya and he since moved out of Kenya and into and out of Ethiopia. Part of his model is to exit countries where he, enters so that he doesn't create dependency. So exiting is part of the model. Anyway, he was a, he was a force recon Marine who learned if you want to be fighting terrorism, you need to be fighting poverty. And I was really compelled by his vision. That's interesting. Yeah. He's an amazing guy, an incredible. You should look him up. His name is Jake Harriman. He's a remarkable individual. I admire him deeply. And the work he's done with Nuru is truly incredible. At that juncture in my life, it was Basically, the decision set before me was go back to a job that's financially lucrative, um, but you already know you don't like it. Or go move to Kenya and work for a nonprofit 
Um, and who knows if you'll ever be able to pay off your student loans. Those yeah. were kind of my two choices. And then right in the middle of that kind of decision moment, this is, you know, spring 2009, the D school, one of the founders of the D school, his name's George Kimball, and he's the executive director of the D school at the time. And he just started saying, Hey, I really feel like there's something here. You're a fit for the program and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to stick around for a year. And so I started exploring what that might look like. And they had at the time what's known as the fellows program, which is basically a year long faculty development kind of farm training program. So they invited me to join for one year. And that was a pretty easy, it was basically, I was, I was deciding to not decide yet. So yeah. because I had that, I thought, oh, I can delay my decision for a year. And I was my run, firm. Run, yeah, run exactly. Away. That's it. That's, yeah. I'm all about preserving optionality. So I, went back to the firm and I said, Hey, I can come back now. By the way, remember 2009 is kind of like right after the, you know, the housing not a great crisis, year. not a great year, a little bit. And I didn't have enough savvy to realize I was probably doing them a favor, but I said, Hey, would yeah. you mind if I waited a year? And they said, Oh, you get to be a faculty member at Stanford. Do that for sure. Yeah. And so it was just the, the, the context was I'm just doing this for a year, but pretty quickly it became clear to me. I love this. And then the question is, what do you do when, when you, when you find work that you love and you still got bills to pay and there's financial arrangements and your word is your bond and your yes means yes, you know, and all this Dude, stuff. Dude, you're out in California, like you're by Stanford. It's from what I hear, not the cheapest state. Not cheap. Not cheap. Um, not, yeah, okay. not like Texas. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 You no, got a bunch real of considerations. It's real yeah. considerations. We had, my wife and I had maxed out every, we got a bunch of 0% interest credit cards. Yep. We maxed out all of them. You know, we did everything oh, yeah. we could do to kind of scrap it together. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, when the kind of when push came to shove, I flew to Dallas and I sat down with a handful of the partners who had really gone to bat for me, who were in my corner, who I trusted and who I felt personally beholden to. And I just explained the situation because mm -hmm. at that time, right, you know, about kind of nine months into my fellowship, there was an opportunity to start leading the executive education program at the D school. And I just put the decision before them. I said, Hey, I'm prepared to come back here. I made an agreement to come back. I, I don't feel like I'd be being true to myself if I did, but I really want to get your input. And to a person, to a man, to a woman, mm -hmm. each one of them said, you can't come back here. You'd be crazy. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was a really surprising moment because I thought they were all going to hold my feet to the fire and make me yeah. do it. And they didn't. And to their credit, I mean, they were really. They really gave me permission to pursue a, what what I considered at the time to be a pretty deviant path, you know, yeah. very far off. Up until that point, it was pretty much doing what I would planned on doing. And that was mm -hmm. a big departure from the plan. Well, and now it's easy to see now 10 years because that's what, 12 years later? Yeah. This is 2009, 2010. So 12 years later. Um, it's easy to see now, okay, well, it worked like it was, and we often do that. Like we go, ah, oh, like we, I knew it would work then you didn't know it would work then. Um, so you jump in and what's your first role? Like what's your first role at Stanford? Uh, it was called a design fellow. And design my first, it, it, and I hear it, this is funny. You say that I start on a Monday, August 31st, 2009. Mm -hmm. And George Campbell, myself and another individual named Thomas, both were the two fellows that year. And George says, Hey, welcome to the D school. Just so you know, on Thursday, all of the biomedical designers are going to have a design thinking training Thursday and Friday, two full days. There's mm -hmm. 15 of them. They're world-class doctors and physicians and surgeons from around the world. You guys are giving them their training. Yeah. And me and, and it's Thomas. Monday to Thursday. Monday. Yeah, exactly. And we look at each other like, wait, we are? What do you mean? And that was our, that was my first, when you say what was the first yeah. thing you did, I spent Wednesday through, or sorry, Monday through Wednesday preparing to deliver a two day workshop in the last two days of my first week. Wow. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's one of those where you're like, oh, let's, let's use a lot of Q and A. What do you guys think? Exactly. Let's open it, open it up to discuss table discussion. What do you guys think? Totally. Yeah. Totally. Oh man. So it you start leading teams. Yeah. It's, it, you start leading teams and how has it evolved over the last 10, 10 years? What you do there? You know, um, I've done a bunch of stuff. Um, but as far as the exec ed programs are concerned, when, when George and 
the folks who ran the D school invited me to stick around beyond that one year mark. The reason they invited me to stick around was there was an opportunity to build the executive education programs into more of a business, you know, kind of capital B revenue generating predictable business. It had been before kind of a bespoke offering where we did really interesting, yeah. high touch kind of, um, very interesting work with organizations, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really a scalable model yet. And so what we did was, um, I joined that team and then another individual, my co-author, Perry Claybon, he, at the, basically what happened was George said, Jeremy, do you want to run this? And I said, I'm looking around the D school and I see most of the people who are successful are pairs. They're duos, teams of people who are running initiatives. And the person who had just been running the initiative that they were kind of offering was an individual. She, I, I had perceived had, um, had been in need of a collaborator. And so I said, if I'm going to do this, I want a collaborator. And George said, well, this guy, uh, Perry Claybon, he's a experienced executive. He had run Patagonia. He was just stepping, stepping down as having been the CEO of Timbuktu, the messenger bag company. Yeah. But he'd been a, a kind of part-time faculty member at Stanford for 20 years. And he said, Hey, what if Perry is your partner? Yeah. And I said, wow, I mean, that'd be, that'd be amazing if he'd be willing to do that. Um, and fortunately enough, Perry was willing to do it. And we started partnering there in 2010. And one of the big changes we make is had, uh, was reflected in the programming of, a or the, the curriculum of the programs. Mm -hmm. So whereas before, you know, say the Hewlett foundation says we want to learn about design. What had happened, what an executive program was, was a bunch of designers get in the room and say, okay, starting from a blank canvas, what are we going to tell them about design? Yeah. You know, we did that program. And then, you know, and we might say, John, which lecture are you most interested in doing? You know, and you'd start mm -hmm. from scratch, right? And then a month later, Fidelity would call and they'd say, hey, we want to learn about design. And we'd start totally blank canvas, new <laughs> yeah. team of people. What Never should we iterate. tell them? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no, whatever, not whatsoever. Yeah. And now, Jeremy, why don't you do that lecture? We do it totally yeah. different. And yeah. so there wasn't a lot of standardization in place. And what Perry and I did is we said, okay, this is the content. You know, it's, this is it right here. Yeah. And we're going to have the same people deliver that content. And what we're going to do is we're going to really develop the student experience side of things because there's no way to experiment if you aren't kind of clear on where you're executing. You can't experiment everywhere all at once, right? Yeah. So we kind of took the curriculum off the table as a vehicle for experimentation or to say it differently. We started experimenting as a team, but keeping that kind of a closely held um, circle of experimentation rather than a very broad and loose circle of experimentation. And what we allowed from our broad network of collaborators, and we've got, you know, a bunch of coaches, scores of coaches who will come in and they'll, they'll leave their job at GoPro or Reach Records or wherever it is to come in and be a coach for a week. And what, where they're responsible for innovating is in the small team context. So every coach has okay. five people, man, kill that, make that your own, make it unique. But you as an, as an individual contributor, as a coach, who's coming in, you know, from a full-time job, you don't have to worry about the broader context of the program. That's something that it, it's all, it all makes perfect sense in retrospect, mm -hmm. but we kind of built that into a business. And so now it's much more of a standardized experience. We're still iterating. We're still changing a lot of things. Every program is different and unique. Um, but we're a lot clearer about who's responsible for what level of iterations and changes and what's mm -hmm. not going to change, what is going to change. And what that's allowed us to do is it's allowed us to expand a lot and broaden the offer to a lot more individuals because we're clear on what the offer is. So if I say I, I come in as an individual or say I'm listening to this right now and I go, okay, this guy seems to know a lot about creativity. He thinks a lot about ideas and how, where, you know, we, you and I talk a lot about like where ideas come from mm -hmm. and how you mm -hmm. shape them and grow them, make them profitable, increase the amount you get to have. If I, if I came in and said, okay, Jeremy, I want to be more creative because yeah. you, you wrote a book called Idea Flow. Mm -hmm. um, that's the new book. How would you, how would you even start that conversation? If I said to you, I want to be more creative in my life, like yeah. broad topic, what would be some of the, some of the practical things you'd encourage somebody to do? Well, first things first, rather than tell you what to do, I'd say, tell me about the last time you were creative. Ah, okay. okay. Right. What was that like? Or, you know, one, one thing I like to do is say, diagram your last breakthrough. Uh, what happened? Like if you had to yeah. say, say there's 10 steps to a breakthrough process, yeah. what is it for you? Yeah. Do people have a hard time even knowing they've had a breakthrough? Yes. Like, does it take them a minute to even identify one? Absolutely. But what happens there is you go, it's because a lot of times what we know is it's often the exceptional stuff that you think about dismissing or disregarding that's actually interesting. 
but no one ever thinks about operationalizing that stuff. That's like the, yeah, I didn't really, I don't always do that, but it's like, no, 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 why not? That's yeah. interesting, yeah. right? Yeah. And so if you get somebody to kind of think about when's the last time you felt like you had a really great idea, a lot of times they find, well, I talked to this unexpected person and I, I, I happened to be reading this other book or watching this movie and I was doing this side project. And what they see yeah. is there's all sorts of variables at play in this creativity equation. And they have been creative. They have had really good ideas and it's not a part of some rigid process. We can talk process and we can talk hygiene and all that stuff, but when someone sees that they have the capacity, and for me, I mean, that's one of my big ahas is I have the capacity to conceptualize something that would be really special, that would really make mm -hmm. a difference in the world. I didn't realize that about myself for a long time. And that was one of the kind of epiphany moments I had as a student was like there was a, there was a specific time where it's like I had an idea that was totally new to the world. Yeah. That's like really cool. But the thing is we all do. We, we don't really appreciate it and we don't really document those things. So I'd start there. But then after, you know, getting someone to kind of document their own breakthrough process or whatever, the, the really simple thing is, well, think about another hobby or ability that you've cultivated. Mm -hmm. What is it? It could be speaking, so, you know, maybe in your case. So would you, does that relax them to see the thing? Cause, because I, I imagine there's pressure when you say like, what's a breakthrough? They think like, well, I never invented Google, so yes. I don't have a breakthrough. And then you go, so do you enter the hobby part to go, there's something special hidden in your day you don't think is special. I'm going to help you find it. Well, I think every, yeah, if we define breakthrough as Google, then we're all toast. You know, there's like yeah, two people yeah. who've done that. But I think <laughs> yeah. you know, basically Larry, Sergey, <laughs> then we're all like up creek. No, but most people have a, you know, you can start to get more granular about when was the time that you were surprised by a solution that came to mind, mm -hmm. you know, that, that you came up with, right? And when, when was the time that you, that you caught yourself off guard or that you were, you were delighted to have thought of an idea, right? It could be in your personal life. It could be, you know, just talking to, uh, an executive at a Japanese pharmaceutical company this morning. And she was saying, you know, we're struggling with this issue at home with my husband. And she said, ordinarily, I get really upset. But because I've been reading your book, I said, what if we reframe the problem? And we had this amazing realization that we had both been thinking that the problem was one thing, but it was actually this other thing, right? We have these moments in our lives. But to me, getting to the question of hobby or ability, you know, it could be I play the piano or I'm a swimmer or whatever it is. And th then I go, well, how long did it take you to develop ability? Most people yeah, will say- takes years. And I'm still not there yet is almost yeah. always the next thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I go, okay, let's start there. Because when we talk about being creative, a lot of people think like in terms of Neo, like the blue pill or the red pill, it's like, are you going to make me creative today? And it's like, uh, yeah. yeah, like, am I going to make you a pianist today? Right. Like think yeah. in terms of any other ability you have in your life, how much time and effort and attention and care you put into it. Mm -hmm. If you want to be more creative, think in terms of like, if you're going to play the piano, you got to do your scales. You're not booking Carnegie Hall next week, right? Yeah. If you want to be a swimmer, you're doing laps. You're not like asking to be dropped off in the middle of the ocean next week if you never yeah. swum before, right? But mm -hmm. when it comes to creativity or innovation, if you ask people, what are your scales? What are your laps? They, it's just like this dumbfounded look like, yeah. what do you mean? It's like, well, let's talk about what our scales are. Let's talk about what doing laps looks like. Yeah. And let's think more because for most people, they think about innovation as this lightning bolt moment. You know, this it just happens suddenly. Eureka. We have a word for it. Eureka. Yeah. 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 Or if not that, then they think of an event like a workshop. You know what we do at my work? We do a hackathon or we have a sprint, yeah. which is all yeah. good. I'm all about sprinting and hacking. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But the point is, if you think in terms of an, an event rather than a practice, you approach the, the, the nurturing of the capability in a certain way. But, you know, I mean, well, I, I was a very bad, uh, track and field athlete in high school. So I ran the 1600 poorly. I more like walked the 1600, yeah. you know, but yeah. I would never show up to attract me without stretching or warming up or having trained. Yeah. Right. We got yeah. people all the time going to sprints that they've got like Cheeto marks on their shirt. 
That's funny. You know, like at work, yeah. it's like, have you yeah. have you even stretched one time in your life? And they're like, no, but I'm here yeah. for the sprint. It's like, please, yeah. you're going to hurt yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah, and the team. You're going to hurt yourself and the team. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that, my version of that is when people tell me they're stuck on a goal and I'll say, well, tell me about a goal that worked. And mm. often they don't take the good things from the last thing to the new thing. Yeah. So they go, I don't know how to get in shape. And I'll go, well, tell me about a goal that worked. And then they'll tell me this elaborate thing they did to pay off debt, but they're not doing any of those things, bringing them forward. Right. So it's like the breakthrough doesn't get to happen again because they've left it all in the past. Right. You, you said a word there that I'd love to sit on for a second, reframing. Yes. Like the power of reframing. Mm. I think that's such a fascinating concept. Where does that fit into problem solving, creativity, yeah. idea flow? Well, John Dewey, the educational reformer said, a problem well put is half solved. Mm. And so a lot of times you realize the problem is the problem. That's what my friend Philippe Barreau, who runs innovation at Michelin says. So many times what we realize is the problem's the problem, meaning mm. we're solving the wrong problem. And so reframing, I mean, the, in kind of classic design thinking terms, what that means is stating the problem from the customer's perspective, because our default in business is to state the problem from our own organizational perspective or our own capability perspective. Mm -hmm. And what we teach students and executives to do is say, well, how does the customer see that problem? How do they describe it? And what are the words they use? And, but the, the kind of the more meta concept there is, and that's, a, that's valuable in terms of design thinking. Cognitively speaking, when we're trying to kind of provoke our own imaginations, a really simple way I think about it is every question or problem statement is like, uh, it's like a, a blueberry or an acai berry, you know, it's antioxidant, you know, mm -hmm. and it's got, I don't, by the way, I'm not a doctor. Don't take medical advice from me, but there's like a free radical. It seeks a free radical, you know, in yeah. your system. And mm -hmm. to me, every way you think about framing a question is going to provoke slightly different ideas. So it's not actually about having the right question, but having a facility or a willingness to phrase the question in a bunch of different ways in order to provoke your thinking. Because what you're ultimately trying to do is provoke your own imagination. Yeah. And so if you're only thinking of the problem in one, one way, key, that's it. You get one imagination. Exactly. So exactly. What are some of the practical tools people can do to provoke their own imagination? So if you like, how would you stir it up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole chapter not to like, you know, sell the book. There's a whole chapter on this, no, on this to topic sell of the book. how We're might we? We're trying to sell the book. Okay. Okay. Like, ignore so, what Jeremy yeah, just said. Yeah. Open we the got book. units to move. <laughs> Come we got on, units people. To move. For crying yeah. out loud. Yeah. Get them while they're hot. No, but yeah. I mean, we, we often use this phrase, how might we? Is a welcoming, yeah. inviting phrase. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of ways to use how might we's to provoke imagination or to see different angles of a particular mm -hmm. problem. I would say, kind of an elegant way that I like to think about asking better questions is when I find myself fixated on a solution and you see this in workshops or in classes all the time mm -hmm. that students will do a bunch of ethnography work with users and they go, you know what, you know what she needs? She needs a nanny, you know, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I'm just making this up. And you go, well, here's a simple, and you can take whatever solution you're thinking of and just call it, you know, X. And then you can just ask the question, what would it do for her or for me if we gave her X, hmm. well, okay. So what would it do for her if we gave her a nanny? Oh, it would give her more free time in her afternoons. Great. Then the problem we're trying to solve is how might we give her free time in her afternoons? And by the way, there's like a thousand ways to do that, right? Not just nanny. Not, not just, just one nanny. X. Nanny is one of a thousand solutions to that problem. Yeah. But what we do is by, by kind of abstracting from the solution to the problem that is solving. And by the way, there are probably a hundred other ways to state that problem than give her free time in the afternoon. But as long as you're fixated on the solution, then it's like, well, what's the hourly rate of the nanny? Like our, our ideation is very, very limited. But if you abstract out a level to the question or the problem you're trying to solve, or even better, state a handful of possible problems that that might be solving, oftentimes you can provoke yourself to think of way more interesting ideas. And that's the essence of reframing. So you're stirring it up. You're looking at it from multiple angles. You're, you're getting around from just one solution. And it reminds me, I, this was somebody, an Uber driver told me this, the Abilene. Have you ever heard the Abilene? No. It's so it's this, it's just a management technique where it's a metaphor for five people that are going to Abilene and no one wants to go. So halfway there, somebody finally goes, 
why are we even going to Abilene? And you realize they all thought the other person wanted to go and the fight. So they, so it's a, a quick question go, are we on the road to Abilene right now? Are yeah. we trying to solve something we don't even want to solve? Right. It's not even a problem we should own. Right. And I always, cause, cause I guess they use the Abilene cause there's just not a tremendous going amount of things going on in Abilene. If your dad had taken you on vacation to Abilene, well, you just you probably would yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are we going to do in Abilene? Um, so it's all so because I've seen people and individuals try to solve problem, solve the wrong problem, create one solution that doesn't do anything, come up with 50 solutions without ever going, what's the problem? Right. Um, so I, I love this, this approach. For you, was there pressure? Like, there's a lot to put into a book, yeah. um, especially when you've had a 10 year runway with kind of the Stanford experience, the creativity, was there pressure to get it all in? Or did you have a sense of, I'm going to be writing multiple books so I can relieve that, like relieve that pressure? You know, someone in this group that I mentioned earlier, this pharmaceutical company I was talking to earlier this morning, they asked, how did we come to the idea of the book? So I'll answer that. I realized thinking through that answered the question you just asked, which is, you know, there's, there's a, a hundred different things we try to convey over the course of an experience, say, you know, whatever the number is. Some things people go, Oh yeah, of course. So like we say, you know, people matter. Nobody's going, what? Yeah. You know, everybody's like, Oh yeah, totally. You know, and we yeah. say, you know, and framing your problem, you know, kind of concisely really helps. Nobody goes, wait, what? Everybody goes, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. cool. And we say, you know, being cheap and scrappy in your experimentation is way more affordable than like expensive. Experiments, people go, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's one thing. And so we're, we, we're stringing together all of these truths in a particular way or a particular sequence. Mm-hmm. Most of the time people go, Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about doing that, but it totally makes sense. Right. There's one thing that we often say and people go, What? Which is kind of what became the anchor paradigm of the book, which is, mm-hmm. you know, how many ideas it takes to have a good idea? Linus Pauling is the, you know, only individual in history to win the Nobel Prize twice as an individual. Mm-hmm. Someone asked him, and he almost won a third, by the way. He was neck and neck with Watson and Crick in discovering the double helix structure of DNA. And he would have had a third if he had done it first. Mm-hmm. But somebody asked him, hey, how do you have so many good ideas? And Linus Pauling's response was, well, to have a good idea, you need to have a lot of ideas. Yeah. And what we've observed, and there's some, there's some research at Stanford on this, and what we've observed is people kind of What's the word? They, they dramatically underestimate how many ideas is a lot of ideas. If you ask somebody, how many ideas do you need? Most people go, yeah. like I, I, I was recently with a group of consultants. There's like 300 people in the room. We told every eight top table, you guys come to consensus. How many ideas do you need to get a good idea? And the winning group gets Bose headphones. Okay. That was like the prize. Oh, nice. Which by the way, I, I dropped the phrase Bose headphones like 20 times. So I'd make sure they gave me a pair, which was very nice of them. Yeah, I yeah. tried to, I tried to make sure the event organizers knew that I wanted some. Um, yeah. but the, uh, the, the kind of average response across these tables of, you know, very senior consultants worldwide was 20. You need about 20, 20. 20 that takes said. 20. Get yes. out of here, dude. Dude, I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding 20? you. 20? But here's the thing, John. You're going to love this. The table in the front row, in the very middle, the chairman of the company gets up. And the question is, how many ideas do you need to have a good idea? And he goes, one. You need one. <laughs> and we're like, and then, of course, we change the slide. And the number is like, from a research perspective, it's like 2,000. And you're like, I feel kind of bad doing this. Like, I wish the chairman yeah, had a, a better setup. intuition, right? I mean, you can't make this stuff. He should have seen. He or she should have seen that coming. That this is a setup. Like, you don't want the number's not going to be one. You don't ask a question like that when the number's going to be one, right? But no. that that figure, this idea that wow, yeah. to get to a commercial success, you need like two thousand ideas. You can you can backtrack out of the funnel and you get it right. It's I mean, and we could walk through it if you want. We don't have to, but the point is. At every stage of kind of the exploration funnel, the, the, the conversion rate makes sense, but nobody mm-hmm. extrapolates across the entire funnel and goes, Oh, whoa, I need a yeah. lot of ideas. Yeah. And then for, uh, and as we start interacting with organizations, whether it's in the world or at Stanford, we notice time and again, whenever that slide comes up, people are like, wait, what? Yeah. And we realize, Oh, that's the paradigm we've got to come at this with. I mean, this yeah. amazing, one of my favorite researchers, a guy named Dr. Dean Keith Simonson, he just won the Mensa Lifetime Achievement Award. Okay. So pretty good. Homeboy's not an idiot. Yeah. 
And he conducted this study across fields, sciences, arts, engineering, discovery, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And the the long and short of it, not to bore you with a really long book, the long and short of it is the single greatest determinant of the quality of your ideas is the quantity of your ideas. That's the single greatest. Single greatest determinant. So if you want better ideas, what should you look for? More. More ideas. But who's got a process for more? Yeah. Nobody. 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 I mean, you asked me at the beginning, hey, what do you do at Stanford? And I said what I say everywhere I go in the world, which is I help people come up with ideas. If you had to guess, what is the universal response to that statement? Could be in Singapore, could be in Colombia, could be in Russia, Israel. Everyone in the world says the same thing. I say I help people come up with ideas. What do people say? Do they say how? How do you come up with a good idea? Yeah. Yeah. And I say, who said anything about good? Yeah. I didn't say good ideas. (laughs) Right? Yeah. But the thing is like, it's so, it's almost like good is inseparable in our minds from idea. And that's the problem. As long as you're only thinking about good ideas, you're toast. Yeah. That's the thing I always say that one of the shorthands for us uh, is uh, be brave enough to be bad at something new. Yes. And I'd say the same thing about that with ideas. Like, yes. But the reason I love this and I'm so such a geek about this is I've had 1,037 ideas this year. I and I that. know that because I have a numerical list. I I just wrote down 1,037 today. The mm. other, like 1,035 was I just wrote, I'm working on a new book about bravery, that bravery is the skill that unlocks every other. Mm. Like bravery is the skill that unlocks every other. So will I use that? I don't know. The book won't come out for three years. Right. But I know that idea 1,035, I had it, I captured it. I'm going to curate it. I'm going to work on it. I'm right. going to do a creative collision, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, so that I couldn't believe in this more. Like it would be impossible for me to be a bigger fan. Speaking of creative collisions, talk talk to people for a minute about what that is. That uh, the The basic idea behind creative collisions is at the heart of an idea is a connection. Very mm-hmm. simply. Yeah, somebody define an idea to a five-year-old. I have a five-year-old daughter. I heard some research that says that no one asks more questions in the world than a five-year-old girl. I don't know if that's true, but I can attest it's a lot. She asked me, Daddy, what's an idea? And I can't give her a definition that doesn't require she look something up in the dictionary, right? Yeah. You start thinking, that's actually kind of hard. And fundamentally, from a neurological perspective, very simply, an idea is a connection. Specifically, a connection between two things you already know. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, the brain doesn't create from nothing. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. The human brain can like neurologically, we're just connecting things, right? Yep. Well, then you realize if an idea is just a connection, you can think about almost like Legos, then your experiences in life, you can be gathering Legos conceptually speaking, right? Yeah. And so, and the idea of creative collisions is being deliberate about grabbing new Legos. Ah, it's so good. That's it. So- that's, That's the so idea. So good. So and that lots know, of things can collide. Exactly. Exactly. And there are structured ways that you can do that. I mean, we can do it. Many people don't do it. Some people do it mm-hmm. implicitly. And then mm-hmm. some people have gone from the implicit to the explicit. It gets back to this idea of operationalizing the thing we already mm-hmm. do, right? Chances are, if somebody really broke down their last breakthrough, there's an unexpected connection that forms there, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you realize that, you go, oh, well, could you seek out a connection like that. I mean, give you a simple example, like somebody like Ben Franklin, like one of history's greatest innovators, forget author and statement, but just like innovator, right? Bifocals, the lightning rod, the Gulf Stream, libraries, the Continental Congress for crying out loud. These are all of his ideas and many more. You can wonder how does somebody like that have such an incredible breadth of ideas? For me, I always want to look at somebody's routine behaviors. Like the fact that you write things down and number them in a notebook is very meaningful, far more meaningful than something that you do randomly, right? Well, Mm -hmm. one thing that Ben Franklin did regularly was every week for 30 years, call it, that's what, you know, 5,000 times, I don't know, Mm -hmm. or something like that. I'm not, don't put me on the spot. Don't put me on the spot to do math right now. Yeah, exactly. You're at Stanford. I'm assuming you're like, I'm not in the finance department anymore. (laughs) I just use Google Sheets. No, but whatever the number is, he met with his Junto. That's what he called it. A group of leather aprons wearers 
who every week would meet for a set period of time and they would discuss certain questions like, has anyone moved to Philadelphia recently that we ought to know and why? Has anyone's business fallen into disrepute and what was that reason? Are there any scientific discoveries that have bearing on what we're doing and what are they, right? They, and they had this long list of questions, yeah. but you go, homeboy did this for 30 years, yeah. 30 years. How many years. people were in this? How many people were in this Small group? group. It's like 12 to 20 people, small group. Okay. But they met regularly. And to me, I mean, backing up a level, it's that is a routine for creative collisions. Yeah. He's being deliberate. He's operationalizing this notion of collisions and he's seeking out new inputs. And when people think about inspiration, like, you know, my wife was a fashion designer when we, when we met. I'm a finance guy. She's in fashion. And she'd say, I got to go to New York to do an inspo trip. I'm like, what is it? Like, when I think of inspiration, I'm thinking of like a cheesy poster that says courage. And it's like a salmon swimming <laughs> yeah. into a grizzly's mouth, right? It's like, yeah, that's inspiration. Got a waterfall. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's painful, right? But when designers use the word inspiration, what they mean is they're gathering inputs. They're gathering inputs. And so what I, I've come to define inspiration as the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input. That's simple. <sighs> But are you disciplined? Is there a time in your, and for most people, especially people in business, there is never a means or a mechanism by which they are seeking to learn something they don't already know or seeking yeah. some new input. Yeah. And then they wonder, why is the, why is the tap not turning on? Well, no new input, no new output. It's that simple. Ah, uh, so good, dude. So good. So there's three things that creative collision, because I think a good conversation is a creative collision in yes. the same way that. hundred percent. So the three things for me that that made me think of was one, I always tell people, I don't believe in writer's block. I believe in idea bankruptcy. Mm, if mm. you can't write, you haven't fed your bank of ideas enough. Yes. Like that's idea bankruptcy, not writer's block. So I feed a lot, like I never sit down with a blank piece of paper. I bring a thousand friends Yes. and we have a lot of collisions. The second thing, and I think I said this on the Masters of Creativity session we did, Dorothy Parker Creativity is a wild mind and a disciplined eye. Yes. The wild is she collects, mm -hmm. the discipline is you see the connections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the I think the reason leaders, individuals don't do the inspiration trip is that they don't see value in it. Yeah. And it reminds me of Orbiting the Giant Hairball by Gordon McKenzie. Did you ever read that? Love it. Yeah. One of my favorites. So he does the example where he says that a lot of people see creativity like a cow chewing its cut in the field and a business person goes, well, it's a waste of time. We should be milking them constantly. It's not profitable. And they don't understand. It took 22 hours of standing in the field to get 20 minutes of milking the cow. But yeah. the milk was part of the 22 hours that looked wasted. Yes. And unless if you divorce that, you don't get the milk. Yes. And so I think that people have a hard time going, oh, an inspiration trip. Like, get would you go to Soho? You right. took a photo, like right. you ate a crepe, like whatever. And you, you go, but if you divorce yourself from that, like you're not getting the stuff. Well, it's That's like, I mean, like one way to think about it very simply is like the, um, I don't know if it's Edison. Somebody said 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration, right? Yeah. The 1% is what enables the 99%. Yeah. You know, and you and can't, you can't take it away. You got a lot of people, you got a lot of uninspired, uninspired perspiration happening to no effect, yeah. right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's no inspiration, right? Yeah. That's so fascinating. What are the moments where... So what have been some of the light bulb moments? You're already teaching this content. That's what's neat about the book. So mm -hmm. idea flow isn't you had an idea for a book and you wrote it. Right. Idea flow is you had years and years and years and years and years of doing this and finally turned it into a book. That's Those right. are my favorite kind of books. Yeah. And you can tell there's a richness to it. There's a realness to it. What have been some of the eye-opening moments along the way that people go, oh, I get it. I was mm. looking at this the wrong way. Oh, that that surprised me that that caught me off guard. That's counterintuitive to what I was taught maybe as right. an executive. Because I guarantee most MBA programs don't have, here's your hardcore creativity class. Not at all. Here's your, insp like, right. here's your inspiration. In the same way that dentists aren't told how to be CEOs and then they bomb their business. Yes. Because they have to be CEOs, not just dentists. Yes. But they don't get that at dental school. So what have been those moments? Well, uh, a couple of things come to mind. One is there's a, there's a really dangerous thinking trap that we all fall prey to called the Einstein effect. I like to think of this as the anti-Einstein effect. Mm -hmm. And it's the tendency, Abraham Luchens identified it in 1942. It's been subsequently 
verified by people like Carl Dunker, by a team of researchers at Oxford. Mm -hmm. But basically, the tendency that's documented there is for a human, when they identify a solution, two things happen. One, they stop looking for other solutions. Two, they're incapable of seeing better solutions. Ah. So if you, if you become aware of that, you realize my tendency is to fixate on the first answer that comes to mind, which by the way, empirically has nothing to do with the quality of the answer. But the first answer that seems passable, and and the reason is Ari Kruglowski, uh, I think a Russian psychologist called this seeking cognitive closure. It turns out that ambiguity of the unknown is profoundly distressing to us psychologically. And so what we do is we just gravitate, we just grab onto the first answer that presents itself regardless of the great fit. And the problem is life's not math. You know, I mean, we joke about the fact that I couldn't multiply, you know, 50 times 30, right? I mean, I can now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, By the way, I think it's 600, but either way, Um, or wait, that's three, maybe 6,000. I don't know. Isn't fit three times five? It's fifteen, so it has to be fifteen hundred, right? Divided by two, and then you take the square root of it, and then you no, take it to the I'm fourth not, power. You're I'm a writer. I'm a writer. Don't. No, it's not. But the point no. is, the the point is simply, we just want the answer. That's yeah. it. We just want the answer, and we don't do. We there's there's no evidence that suggests that the first idea is our best idea. And in fact, another piece of research, which I love, it's called the creative cliff illusion. If you survey folks, you ask them about it, their expectation is their creativity tends to dip over time. That's if you plot creativity over time, it goes down, but they call it the illusion because it's empirically, it's not true. Creativity doesn't dip over time. And in fact, you can have what's what I refer to as a creative ramp. It's possible to have a creative ramp. And the way to turn the cliff into a ramp very simply is you expect better ideas to come later. Mm-hmm. And so you set that expectation. Set the expectation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking about solving a problem, do you, are you are you fixated on the first solution that comes to mind or are you even aware of that tendency? And then flipping, we do it we call it doing the daily idea quota where every day you flip your orientation from a fixation on the right answer to as many answers as possible. And the th- the reason I mentioned math earlier is not all the, the very few of the problems we're facing today are math problems, meaning have, have one right answer, right? Mm-hmm. And by the way, physicists would tell you not even math problems have one right answer, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of problems, like what should I title this? What should I put the subject line of this email? There's not one right answer. No. Uh-huh. Right. But we think of one thing and we put it in and then we never even look at it again. Right. Yeah. And yeah. what the, what, what we suggest is at least once a day, just take one problem where you you know, your tendency is just to choose an answer and move on. And try to generate 10 because it will start to reinforce the muscle of diverging and the muscle of enduring that ambiguity, fighting that tendency towards cognitive closure. And that's part of the training that makes you prepared when it comes time to sprint. It's a practice. It's a practice for other parts of your life. It's And the thing is, like, I, I love I love thinking about it like this. My little sister played volleyball in high school. Okay. And she's, mm-hmm. she could, you know, kick my butt to this day. Way better. I noticed one time we were at the grocery store. My mom said, Rachel, would you grab a jug of milk from the refrigerator? And she went to the refrigerator. She grabbed the jug of milk. You know what she did on the way back to the cart? She did Mm -hmm. gallon curls, right? And then she put the milk in the cart. Why? Because to an athlete, every gallon of milk is a dumbbell. Yeah. You know, can you imagine if I said, Rachel, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Your coach isn't here. You're not wearing your volleyball uniform. So you'd be like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I'm just getting strong. I want to get strong. And the point is there's a certain mentality that accompanies a desire to work on something, right? When you say, I want to become more creative all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. Mm. Well, is a subject line of an email, a, a, a jug of milk that I can do a few curls with? Yeah, totally. It, if I see it's it, all that jugs. Way, it's all jugs of milk. Every, that, and that's why we say every problem is fundamentally an idea problem. Yeah. And if, and if you realize what that means, oh, it yields to a volume of possibilities. Then you go, okay, well, then the first thing I'm going to do is generate a volume of possibilities. Ah, it's so good. Right? So good. It's that yeah. simple. I love that. So last three questions, because I could talk about this all day, because it's right in my wheelhouse. 
You told me a story about you missed the solution. I believe it was you, not your brother. I think your brother clarified it for you. Uh-huh. You missed a solution. You missed solving a problem that was very obvious. Yes. Um, tell that story, and then how can we not miss obvious solutions or generating lots of solutions? So, the, so the reason I miss, mentioned that story is because it's so you know, like uh, the men's hair club once said, "I'm not." I'm not only the president, I'm also a member. You know, yeah. for me, I'm not only the writer of Idea Flow, I also need it. The reason that yeah. it's a, a that it's a, a valuable book is because I still need these tools every day. And I'm not knowing it doesn't mean you've perfected it, right? And I yeah. the the experience I had the other day, it kind of illustrates the point is I'm driving down the highway, I've got a bunch of errands to do for my family, and my car is just stacked up with a bunch of stuff I gotta take care of. And I had dumbly kind of stacked up this 40 pound cooler at like a Jenga brick of death in my passenger seat. And so every time I turn right, this Jenga brick just slams into my shoulder. You know, it's like, and I can't get it. You know, I'm driving, I'm on the highway and I go, okay, I got like 45 or 50 minutes here. I've just resigned myself to rotator cuff damage, like permanent damage. You know, I've kind of like jacked my, my so elbow good. in there to just kind of be safe. But every time it's falling and hitting, it's hurting me. And then my brother calls me. We're just catching up. I've got him on my headphones. And um, a couple minutes into the conversation, he said, hey, dude, why do you keep grunting? And I go, oh, sorry, I've got this stupid cooler. It keeps slamming into my shoulder. It's kind of, it's actually really hurting. It's kind of embarrassing. He's like, well, have you buckled it in? Yeah. And I go, I mean, it was one of those moments. I just slapped my forehead. I was like, Zach, I never even thought of it. He goes, well, and he's a, he does roofing in Texas. He's like, oh, whenever I'm in the truck and you know, stuff's rolling around, I just buckle it in to be safe. And I go, I can't believe I didn't even think to ask for help. You know, yeah. it was, it was just this. And I actually took, I, you know, in one minute, like while I'm still driving, I buckle this thing in and I solve the problem that two minutes ago I had resigned myself to suffering through for the next 50 minutes. Yeah, right. Yeah. There was and, no, you, yeah, you, it's all it took. It's all it took. And the thing that, and the reason it spoke to me and the reason I took a photo of it and I sent it to him, I said, I'm the ideas guy. I'm the creativity <laughs> expert. And yet when I'm facing a problem that is legitimately yeah. painful, I did, I wrote a whole chapter on seeking outside perspectives. Would yeah. I, and if I had ever framed it up as, you know what? I'm facing a problem. Then, and, and furthermore, one of the levers at my disposal to generate solutions to this problem is to ask someone who might have a perspective on this. Like I'm, it's the, it's a quintessential opportunity for you, for me to use my own book. And yeah. yet I missed it. Right. And so yeah. to me, I took the picture mostly as a way of remaining humble that we're all yeah. in need of these reminders. And yeah. the more you practice these behaviors, the better you get at identifying when you get an idea problem. I, I love that. I, that story is something I thought about multiple times. Two last questions. You've, you quoted like 50 other books in this podcast. So you're obviously mm. a reader. What would you say is on your Mount Rushmore of, of nonfiction, productivity, high performance, creativity, answer it any way you want. Mount Rushmore, these four books, minus any that you've written. Mount Rushmore, I would say, because um, I'm into business and, and um, you know innovation, that intersection. I'd say uh, John Gertner's The Idea Factory. It's a book about Idea Factory, Bell Labs, right. which is just mind-blowingly good. Um, Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. One sure. of my favorite books ever. Just absolutely incredible. Uh, Isaacson's Ben Franklin. I love ah, that book. Okay. Over the Steve Jobs. Over. Uh, oh. You know, the thing about Steve Jobs, what, what I will give Steve Jobs maybe the edge on is I can really, I remember so many of those innovations because they happened in my lifetime. And so yeah. almost like to get the backstory on it is pretty cool. Yeah. So I might, yeah, I'll give you Steve Jobs. And then the last one I would say, uh, Steven Johnson's Where Good Ideas Come From. I have that on my shelf. You recommended I that. I, I bought it. I haven't it. read it yet. But you got you, to. Rec- you recommended that one. So those are f- four great recommendations. And we'll stick with Benjamin Franklin. I'm not trying to sell you on the, the Steve Jobs one. So yeah, all right, yeah, last red. question. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, check out the book website, ideaflow.design is mm-hmm. where all the book resources live. And then I also blog every day at uh, jeremyutley.design. I'm on Twitter, things like that. And then moc.stanford.edu is where folks can check out your episode and the other episodes yeah. of that series. It's super fun. It's super fun. Well, dude, this was a blast. 
Love the book. Love the work you're doing. Can't wait to see what happens next. I think this is the first of many books that will come out of this experience. Yeah, I hope um, so. Hey, one, one yeah. thing I just remembered, we put a free chapter of the book on the website called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. Speaking of Steve Jobs. Ah, nice. If you want to check it out, yeah, go to ideaflow.design. It's totally free, but it's How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. And it's a oh, bunch of perfect. material almost like from the cutting room floor of our research process. There's sure. only so many times you can reference Steve Jobs in an innovation book before I take a limit, yeah. dude. Where you yeah. have to be like, so we put it all in the bonus chapter. It's all in the bonus chapter. If you want to get, I if you want to geek out on Steve Jobs, we got you covered. Yeah, I love it. I love. It. Well, Jeremy, thanks for joining me today. This was a blast. Dude. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's interview with Jeremy Utley. We'll put all the links in the show notes as always. And thank you for reviewing my podcast. The reviews are super encouraging, super helpful. And a lot of them are pretty funny. You guys write some funny things in the in the reviews. So if you got 60 seconds or 90 seconds, if you want to be a little chatty, please write a review. Please make sure you follow or like or subscribe or whatever it is the kids are saying these days and keep the reviews coming. I'll see you next week. And remember, all it takes is a goal. And don't forget to pick up your copy of the Finish Calendar. Brand new, massive, beautiful, double-sided, vertically or horizontally, paper or dry erase at finishcalendar.com. Once again, that's finishcalendar.com. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the All It Takes is a Goal podcast and to get access to today's show notes and exclusive content from John Acuff, visit acuff.me slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the All It Takes is a Goal podcast.